Welcome back. Simply put, our next guest is one of the most thoughtful and prophetic individuals in global finance today. He's also a gentleman, and we are privileged at Malden Economics to be working with him every year for this conference. Louis Gov spent over two decades in Asia while leading one of the world's most respected investment firms, GavCal. He co-founded GavCal along with his father, Charles Gov and Anatole Koletsky. I could go on and on, but I think most SIC attendees know who Louis Gov is. Uh, he will be taking your questions. Louis, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Ed, thank you so much for the very kind and far too generous words. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I usually I get an early spot on SIC, which uh, uh, which is good because now I you know I have to come in and a lot of the great ideas, uh, given the roster of speakers that you've had this year, uh, have have already gone. But I'm uh, I'm delighted to be here nonetheless. I'm sorry we can't do this in person. I'm hopeful that I'll see a lot of you uh, this time next year at next year's SIC. Um, as some of you know, uh, I'm I'm from the I'm originally from the southwest of France. Um, and in the southwest of France, um, rugby uh, is a, a huge part of the, the cultural makeup of, uh, of the region. Uh, you see a rugby jersey behind me. Uh, rugby has been a, a big part of my life. And today I'm going to start talking about uh, the French captain uh, the t from the 1960s. Um, the, the chap was called uh, Walter Spongero, and he was a mountain of a man. Uh, broad shoulders, huge hands. And uh, as this uh, picture can, oops, sorry. I got to get used to the cl new clicker system. As, uh, as this picture can attest, is this working or not? Um, all right, there we go. Um, as this picture can attest, uh, a proper French nose. Uh, a Cyrano de Bergerac-like nose that uh, would probably allow uh, Walter Spongero to uh, to smoke in the shower. Uh, but this nose would, would become uh, very famous for following a, a pretty ill-tempered game against England. Uh, he was asked uh, on, on the way out about a particular incident where he had some, uh, uh, some words, shall we say, with uh, his opposite player on the English team. And he said, well, he said uh, and that remained famous, he said, um, Thank God my nose was there to stop the punch. Otherwise, it would have hit me straight in the face. Um, now, the reason I highlight this today is that um, I think for a lot of us, uh, oh, I keep doing the clicker wrong, sorry. Uh, for most of us, uh, for the past 30, 40 years, bones have been the nose in the middle of our face. They've been the bedrock of our portfolios. They, in essence, have always been there to take the punch and make sure that the punch didn't end up breaking our skulls. Um, and so if you look at this first chart, it's a simple total return for um, um, U.S. equities in, uh, in red, U.S. treasuries in black, cash and gold for the broadly disinflationary years of 1980 to today. Um, and the great thing about bonds through this period is it not only delivered total absolute returns, but again, they were there in times of trouble. So in the early 2000s, when equities crash, bonds go through the roof. In um, uh, same in 2008, 2009, um, so on and so forth. Each big hit in the system, bonds were there to save your bacon, um, except for the past year. And I think this is, uh, to be honest, the most important development uh, of the past year is the fact that if you look at late March 2020, if you look at September, October 2020, if you look at late February 2021, i.e. periods where the S&P shed 5 to 10% or more, during those periods, U.S. Treasuries actually went down along with equities. Um, we've now had a full year where basically U.S. Treasuries did not do the job you expected them to do. Um, worse than that, if you look at the first quarter of this year, total long, the total return for long-dated bonds was the worst since the third quarter of 1980. Now, of course, in the third quarter of 1980, uh, the Fed was basically had started to crack down on inflation. In the third quarter of 1980, the Fed was raising interest rates 
and trying to uh, drain excess liquidity from the system. And sure enough, the bond markets didn't like it. Today, the situation could not be more opposite. Today, we have a situation where the Fed, instead of draining liquidity, where the Fed, instead of raising interest rates, is promising to keep interest rates at zero for the very, very long ter term and adding $120, $130 billion every month uh, into the system by buying bonds. Which to me brings me to, to the first question every investor should be asking th themselves, is why are bonds selling off when the Fed is buying bonds hand over fist? Um, and not only that, when the Fed promises to do so for a very long time. And I think to, to this very simple question, you can find really four possible answers. Uh, the first is that the bond market doesn't believe the Fed's promise. Um, I don't believe that's the right answer. The second is that the market is making a mistake uh, and yields are set to collapse very soon. I also don't believe that's the answer. Um, the third is that even though the Fed is buying $120, $130 billion a month, uh, given the amount that the US Treasury is issuing, it's not having enough of an impact. Um, I'll come into that in a second. And the fourth, uh, and perhaps uh, even more topical after today's very strong inflation readings, is that the bond market is, is starting to worry uh, about inflation. Um, and here, of course, uh, this brings me to, to my next slide. And that is that if we are moving into a world where the inflation rate will now be structurally higher, then we're moving into a world that is completely different, where your portfolio construction gets upended, where basically you can no longer count on uh, bonds to be the nose in the middle of your face. Um, bonds will no longer protect you against anything. Uh, and if this is the case, then the past year is not an anomaly. Uh, the past year really marks the fact that uh, we are transitioning to something uh, very different. Um, now, uh, this brings me to the point I, I already made last year uh, but uh, at the SIC, but, th but that I'll make again. Um, and that is that uh, our minds, when scary events happen, our minds tend to focus disproportionately on them. Um, and that's probably because of 50,000 years of evolution. You know, we were trained, well, you know, whenever we left the caves, we were worried that a tiger uh, or a bear uh, might, might jump on us. So we tend to focus perhaps too heavily on scary events. So if I asked you, for example, what was the single most important of 2001, you'd most likely say it was 9-11 um, because that was a deeply traumatic event. With the benefit of hindsight, however, we know that China entering the WTO ended up having a much bigger global impact uh, than 9-11. Or if I asked you the big event of 2007, 2008, you would mo most likely say the subprime crisis because that was also a scary event. Again, with the benefit of hindsight, the launch of the smartphone uh, ended up have casting a long, a much bigger and longer uh, shadow. Um, now, the other thing I would highlight, you know, just talking about these two previous crises, is that the big crises that we've had over the past 20 years have tended to spur greater productivity gains. Uh, in 2001, we saw China join the WTO, which unleashed a new wave of globalization and productivity gains linked mostly to outsourcing. In 2007, the launch of the smartphone also triggered a surge in productivity, just as the 2008 crisis basically pushed China to embark on an infrastructure spending boom such as the world has never seen. Um, and in so doing, basically unleashed 500 million Chinese workers onto the global uh, um, workforce. Um, today, of course, we've had a massive COVID uh, crisis, a pandemic. And the question has to be, how will this COVID crisis boost productivity? And if it doesn't, then will the COVID crisis legacy be something altogether very different? Um, so on the COVID crisis being an accelerator, perhaps, of, of uh, productivity, I would just highlight that crises, by and large, tend to be accelerators to trends that are already underlying and already exist. Um, so before 2008, we, were, we lived in a world that was rapidly globalizing, right? Uh, China joined the WTO, more and more manufacturing was moving to China. But 2008 ended up uh, accelerating this, um, uh, this globalization. 
all of a sudden, as I mentioned, China embarked on unprecedented infrastructure spending, which allowed 500 million or so Chinese workers to join into the global workforce. Before 2008, if you were producing in China, that basically meant you were producing in Shenzhen or Shanghai. After 2008, if you're producing in China, it may be Chongqing, it may be Zhengzhou, or it may be Wuhan. Um, at that point, all businesses are very eager to capture what we could call the Wuhan price, uh, cheaper cost of labor, cheaper cost of land. What we now know 12 years later is that this cheaper cost also came with some exter externalities that perhaps we, we had not uh, accounted for. And that brings us to the post-COVID world. The post-COVID world is very likely to be a world marked with more deglobalization, more reshoring of supply chain, um, less exporting of production. Uh, I wrote a book about this two years ago called Clash of Empires. Um, but needless to say, the, uh, you know, the rollout of the pandemic uh, will only reaccelerate the move towards uh, reshoring rather than offshoring. Uh, so the COVID crisis will lead to further deglobalization. Um, the COVID crisis is also leading to a massive surge in government spending and a massive surge in government regulations. And in that respect, it is already a very different policy uh, response than we had post-2008. If you remember post-2008, immediately there was a big increase in government spending, but that was very rapidly tapped, um, especially in the US. It was also tapped in the UK with the austerity programs. It was tapped in, uh, it was capped, not tapped, it was capped in uh, Europe with the austerity policies implemented all across Southern Europe. And in the US, of course, you had the Tea Party, a Tea Party that arrived to power in 2010 and basically led to government spending. Uh, this is this chart uh, is a chart of US federal government expenditures. Government expenditures basically flatlining around the four trillion mark for six years running. Um, this is now completely changed. Um, we are now in a world where government spending is, you, each time you pick up the paper, it feels like the US is announcing an additional $2 trillion plan. In fact, following today's high inflation numbers, it's rumored that uh, Pre President Biden will launch a $2 trillion plan to look into the uh, causes of inflation. Um, jokes aside, um, those massive increase in debt, massive increase in government spending that you see, means that last year, the debt per American worker, government debt, federal government debt per American worker, increased by $39,000 or $13,000 roughly per, uh, per worker. Um, this is simply unprecedented. Never before have you seen such a rapid increase in debt. And if you think, well, it doesn't matter because everybody's doing it. Uh, yes, everybody is doing it. Everybody is increasing their debt. But last year, if you look at the increase in debt per, uh, per capita in US dollar terms, which is the, the, the column on the far right, um, while the US was basically adding 13,000 of government debt per person, Europe was roughly somewhere between four and 6,000. Canada tried to keep up with the US and did 8,000, uh, so well done them. Uh, but Canada was, of course, starting from a much, much lower base. So if you look at the total debt per capita, Today, the U.S. is rapidly catching up on Japan. In fact, following uh, Biden's um, uh, latest spending plans in 2021, the U.S. Will, will move above Japan to be the most indebted country per capita, basically per person. Um, to put things in perspective, to put the, these debt numbers in perspective, the $5.7 trillion response to COVID from the United States um, is roughly 30 times the Marshall Plan in constant dollars. The Marshall Plan from which you know, that, that allowed Europe to basically rebuild itself after World War II. It's roughly six times FDR's New Deal, which allowed for the electrification of the southern and western United States. Um, and that brings me to uh, an important point, and that is that there's nothing wrong in an increase in debt per se. The big question is, what does this debt fund? What does the debt finance? If the debt funds productive investments that allow for the debt to be repaid down the road, then why not? Uh, terrific. You get productivity gains and and, uh, and you get progress. Um, unfortunately today, when you look at the increase in debt uh, in the United States, so far, the increase in debt, you know, hasn't gone into building any new Hoover dams. It hasn't gone into building any new interstate highway system. It's really gone straight into funding consumption. 
it's gone into making sure that consumption in the U.S. did not go down. So if you look on the left-hand side, the growth in uh, household balance sheets, this is 2020 was a very odd recession where on the one hand, you had a massive recession and on the other, you'd had massive improvement in uh, household balance sheets. Um, meanwhile, as the chart on the right-hand side illustrates, um, even though you've had massive increase in government spending, you've really yet to see any real genuine increase in either the stock of capital in the US or an increase in, in capital uh, expenditures. Um, now, the other big thing, the, the first thing when you look at debt is, of course, what is the debt funding? Uh, is it funding capital spending or is it funding consumption? Um, and the, the second thing, of course, is how is the debt itself funded? Um, and here, there's really three options. When you look at a big increase in debt, the debt can be increased uh, by the government tapping domestic private sector savings. In essence, crowding out uh, the private sector. And when this occurs, this is rather deflationary because the government takes money from where it is productive to put it where it's less productive. The second possibility is the government taps foreigners to fund its debt increase. This is what Germany did in the early 90s. It funded, Germany funded its, um, its um, um, uh, reunification by uh, tapping basically all of Europe's savings. Uh, this usually means a stronger currency and it's really deflationary uh, for, your, for your country. Um, now, the third possibility is that the government leans on the central bank to print new money to fund its spending habit. Um, and this is usually very inflationary. Um, now, I think we all know on this call which way the US government has gone. Uh, but just in case there's any doubt in your mind, uh, this is the chart of broad money growth in the United States, growing currently at 27%. So today, the massive increase in U.S. government debt is not being funded by the government tapping foreign, foreign savings. It's not funded by the government tapping domestic savings. It's funded by the government printing uh, new dollars. Um, so more dollars funding more consumption while production is not accelerating. Um, this is a backdrop, of course, for the kind of inflation numbers uh, that that we are now seeing. Um, for all intents and purposes, you know, for all the talk about MMT and whether the U.S. is going to do MMT, et cetera, uh, the reality is we're already there. The When you look at the activities of the U.S. Treasury borrowing and the central bank printing, it's basically two sides of the same picture now. Um, it's two sides of the same coin. The merger between the U.S. Treasury and the central bank for all intents and purposes, has already happened. Uh, and that brings me to uh, my next question, which is whether Biden infrastructure spending plan, the, the two trillion or so that, that's, uh, that's now making its way through Congress, uh, whether that will be passed. Um, if the, an additional two trillion spending is, is announced on top of the 5.7 that's, or is, is passed on top of the 5.7 that's already happened, then I think we can expect yield curves to steepen further further outperformance of financials, further rally of com rally in commodities, massive breakout in inflation expectation, uh, and a U.S. dollar that continues to weaken. If Biden's infrastructure spending plan does not pass, then most likely U.S. Treasury yields might fall, U.S. growth stocks will uh, outperform again, and the U.S. dollar will rally. So here, we're, we're, I think we're at our first important crossroad. For what it's worth, I think it will pass because most politicians, when given half a chance, like nothing, love nothing, loves nothing less but spending money. Um, so I think it will pass. And uh, therefore, the inflation expectations that are currently really sitting at generational highs, at 20 year highs, more or less, uh, will break out on the upside. Inflation expectations um, are now basically un unanchored. Um, now, the next big question, of course, is in such a scenario, what, what happens to the US dollar? Um, and here, you know, I've, I've spent most of my career, as Ed was highlighting, in, in emerging markets. Um, and for me, one of the golden rules uh, of investing in emerging markets is that when, um, when you see rising bond yields and falling currency values, that's the market telling you that the policy settings are too loose. Um, the markets is basically telling you that until you see a change in monetary policy, until you see a change in fiscal policy, that currency is gonna be heading lower. And that's where we are in the US today. Um, the US is now starting to act like a sick emerging market with rising bond yields. And even though bond yields are rising, the US dollar is going down. Uh, 
Now, a big part of the equation of the US dollar will be resolved by what happens in Europe. Um, and here, the story is very, very simple. The US started to reopen two, three months ago, thanks to a, a, a good vaccine rollout. The US yield curve steepened, um, and the US economy rebounded very strongly. Meanwhile, Europe's policymakers made a complete hash of the vaccine rollout. Uh, it's been a complete debacle. However, you know, better late than, than never, they're getting their, their act together, um, and the vaccines are now rolling out in Europe, which gives you the hope that Europe might have a decent summer. Um, and that just like you saw in the US, yield curves in Europe will start to, to, to steepen, and they are actually now uh, starting to steepen. Um, and that brings you really to, I think, one of the most important questions today. And that very, very important question today is whether Europe will end up having a halfway decent summer or not. Um, if like me, you think, yeah, you know what, Europe's on track to reopen, uh, all the Dutch, the Germans, et cetera, are gonna be able to drive through France to get to Spain uh, and party for the summer, uh, then if then, and I think that's what will happen, then you're gonna see a steepening of European yield curves, you're gonna see Europe, outperformance of European financials, and you're gonna see a big rally in the Euro. Um, if I'm wrong, if Europe does not reopen, if Europe basically continues to make a hash, uh, a hash of everything, uh, and if Europe stays locked down for the summer, then the fall is going to start getting very nasty in Europe because most Europeans naturally compare themselves to Americans, naturally compare themselves to Brits. And if they see Americans partying in stadiums, if they see Brits having a good time in open pubs while they're stuck at home, come this fall, there'll be riots in the streets. Um, and I think the, the, the possibility of a populist then being elected in either Italy or France uh, and coming in forward with a very anti-EU agenda uh, will, should not be discounted. Um, so Europe is at a crossroad. Either basically the whole EU edifice starts to break apart again come the fall, or we have a summer. Uh, fortunately, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, uh, that we're gonna have, uh, that we're gonna have a summer. Um, oh, doesn't see. Okay. Now another big piece of, uh, of the, I think of the US dollar equation is, uh, is what's going to happen uh, to energy. Um, and on energy, uh, I'll just highlight a simple chart. I think everybody on this call knows that one of the big productivity miracle of the past 10 years occurred in US energy production. Uh, basically, the US moved from producing 5 million barrels per day 10 years ago to 13 million barrels per day a year and a half ago. Um, however, that productivity boom in uh, in energy production came at the cost of massive capital waste. Um, you, know, you had more than $300 billion write-offs in, uh, in the shell space over the past decade. Um, and since then, of course, the appetite of investors for investing in energy has uh, dampened a lot. Uh, combine that with new ESG requirements, uncertainties uh, of what Biden's energy policy might be, et cetera. And you're now in a situation where instead of growing, US energy production is actually basically plateauing around 11 million barrels per day. Now, the reason this matters is that while US energy production is plateauing, US energy consumption is, I believe, about to go absolutely through the roof. Now, on a normal summer, the US uses roughly 9.75 million barrels per day. Um, the US accounts, the US gasoline demand is 9% of global oil demand. So it's, it's consequential. Um, now, I think a question we should all ask ourselves is this summer, are Americans more likely to stay at home or are they more likely to get in the car and go somewhere else? Um, now, everybody I talk to says, I can't wait to get somewhere else. Uh, I'm sick of my living room. I'm sick of my kitchen. Uh, I just want to get out and go anywhere. Uh, even, even I'll take a business trip to Duluth at this point. Um, and so I think, you know, the if previous years, you know, like a 2017, 18, 19, Gasoline demand was roughly 9.75 million barrels per day. This year, we'll blow through the 10 million number. And we'll blow through the 10 million number at a time when US oil production is obviously either uh, flat to down, and when, hold on, is this working? And when uh, inventories are actually not as high as you might expect, given the big collapse that, that, uh, that we've just had. So, this could have a dramatic impact on the US dollar. 
for a very simple reason, is that if oil prices goes up, go up and the uh, U.S. production does not go up, which to me seems by far the most likely scenario, then the U.S. trade deficit, then that oil will have to come from somewhere. The U.S. will have to import that oil. And that oil will basically be imported from either Venezuela, where actually production is collapsing, or Canada, or Mexico, or Nigeria, or wherever else. But it will mean that the U.S. trade deficit plunges to new lows. And the U.S. import building to oil will, that had been improving for 10 years, will start rolling over. Now, as oil prices go up and the U.S. imports more oil, that means that petrostates start to make more money. Uh, now, what we saw in the last oil boom from 2000 to 2008 uh, was that as the U.S. oil import bill went up, basically people on the other side who were earning these dollars very often did not want to keep these dollars, either for geopolitical reasons, if you're Iran, if you're Russia, if you're Venezuela, you don't keep U.S. dollars, or simply because what you want to consume is very often not uh, in the United States, if you're Saudi Arabia, if you're the UAE, if you're Libya or, or, or elsewhere. Now, in the 2000s, when the likes of Iran and Venezuela and Russia were earning U.S. dollars hand over fist and they didn't know what to do with them, they recycled those into euros. Back then, the euro was the new kid on the block. It was the new exciting currency. Uh, today, of course, the euro is no longer the new kid on the block, nor is it uh, exciting. Instead, the new kid on the block is the renminbi. Uh, China, which is pushing very hard, as I've detailed in many previous SIC, to transform the renminbi into Asia's trade and reserve currency, or if, in fact, emerging markets trade and reserve currency. So that brings me to my next real decision point here. Do you think the US will have a strong driving season? If like me, you think, yes, the US will have a very strong driving season, then oil prices are likely to keep breaking out on the upside, especially if at the same time Europe reopens, energy stocks will continue outperforming, the yield curves will steepen further, and the US dollar will go down, partly because of the recycling of the petrodollars. If you disagree with me, if you think, no, no, everybody's going to be COVID scared, they're going to stay at home, nobody's going to travel, then energy prices will roll over, the yield curves will flatten, the EM, the financials, the commodity will struggle, and the US growth stocks will outperform. So here again, I think we have a fairly simple, uh, simple crossroad. Oh, these charts got messed up, uh, maybe because they were too ugly to contemplate. Uh, but these were basically charts of other commodities, uh, corn, lumber, uh, shipping, copper. Um, now, what we know is that the price of most commodities is roughly is always driven by energy prices. Um, you know, to get the food, the price you pay for the food on your plate is typically a third to half of energy. Same for gold miners, same for copper miners. Extracting commodities is a very energy intensive business. So if energy prices continue to go up, uh, it seems likely that a lot of the, co the, the commodity prices that have lately been breaking out uh, continue to, uh, to, to break out. Now, uh, so as we see, you know, lumber prices go through the roof, copper go through the roof, steel go through the roof, and so forth. Uh, that brings you, of course, to the question of housing. Now, housing today is, I think, a real quandary. Because if you look at house prices in the United States, they're basically back to their all-time highs relative to income. So you would think, okay, housing can't go much higher. But at the same time, inventories are close to record lows. Um, well, not close to record lows, sorry. Inventories, the number of houses that are available for sale in the United States today uh, is at all-time lows. Never before have you had so few houses. Um, and so you're stuck in, in the uncomfortable situation where there is no inventory. The, commodity the commodities to build houses keep going up. The labor costs to, to build houses keep going up. Um, but that means that housing becomes ever more unaffordable. Um, so that brings you to the next decision tree. Do you think real estate continues to become unaffordable? If so, then wages will have to rise. And in fact, they are rising. Um, and if you think, no, real estate is going to roll over, the question is why? Why would real estate prices roll over when construction costs are rapidly rising, material costs are going through the roof, there's no uh, labor to speak of, uh, and the Fed continues to promise lower interest rates? You know, where, how, is, how are real estate prices going to roll over with that backdrop? Um, and that, of course, brings you to the big quandary, uh, and that is what happens to wages. Now, the recession we've just had was a very unusual recession in that it was a recession where w wage costs never went down. Um, now, uh, the other very unusual thing for this recession we've just had is that 
job openings today in the United States, and I'm sorry, I forgot to include the chart here, but job openings are at all time high. Um, so how will wage pressures stay in check uh, now that we see them accelerating? Now, historically, wage pressures for the past 20 years stayed in check really thanks to two things. The first was we would export jobs to China. Uh, and so when, uh, you know, we would just, when the US dollar got too strong or when labor costs got too strong, we'd export jobs abroad. But today, the renminbi is moving up very rapidly. This is another very unusual thing in this past year, is that usually in uncertain times, Chinese policymakers flatline the value of their currencies. You see this in the post-2008 environment. You see this in the 2015 boom and bust on Chinese equities. Um, when there's uncertainty in the world, China before used to freeze the value of the renminbi. In the past year, you've seen the biggest increase in, um, in the value of the renminbi uh, on, uh, on a year-on-year -year basis. Um, the, the other way, of course, you could deal with the higher labor costs is replace labor with robots. Um, but that's hard to do when there's no semiconductors. How do you build robots without semiconductors? Because today, let's not kid ourselves, we have a massive shortage of semiconductors. We see this in autos. We see this in the consumer electronics space. We see this in the appliance space. How, why would we think that the robotics industry would be any different? Now, I yield to no one in my bullishness on the robotics industry. I've given talks to SIC in the past about robotics. I wrote a book about it back in 2012. I'm the chairman of a, of a robotics-focused ETF called Robo. Uh, so, you know, I, but we have to acknowledge that in a world where semiconductors are in deep shortage, uh, it is a hurdle uh, for, for, for the industry. Um, uh, so that brings me to uh, the, the, the conclusion, and I'm sorry, I've been longer winded than I'd hoped to be. Uh, for me, really, the big question, as I see the, the Asian currencies go up, as I see the shortage developing in semiconductors, as I see inflation rolling up uh, everywhere around the world, the big question for me is whether we are not on the brink of a reverse Asian crisis. Um, now, as the older one amongst you may remember, 1997, the Asian crisis basically led to a massive transfer of uh, purchasing power from the Western world, from, sorry, from Asia to the Western world. All of a sudden, all of us could go to holidays in Phuket or uh, buy Korean-made TVs for a fraction of what they were before. Um, we had a massive transfer of purchasing power. This transfer of purchasing power is now well and clearly over. Um, and instead of seeing capital flow from Asia to the Western world, the next 10 years, we'll see capital flow from the Western world to Asia. In fact, this is already happening. If you look at uh, flows into the Chinese bond markets, um, it's basically gone from nothing to roughly $20, $25 billion a month uh, every month. Every month, foreigners are buying for $20 to $25 billion worth of, uh, of, of, Chinese, uh, of Chinese fixed income instruments. And, um, and as a result, you know, this has, of course, helped Chinese uh, bonds do quite well. Um, but today, with basically Chinese government bonds outperforming every major bond market, with the Chinese renminbi, oh, again, the charts didn't work, sorry. But again, the, uh, with the Chinese renminbi, basically being the world's major strongest currency on a 12-month basis, on a 36-month basis, on a five-year basis, on a 10-year basis, all the momentum money in the world is now flowing uh, into China. Um, and for a very simple reason. Not only is China delivering strong, Chinese Fink's income is delivering strong positive returns, strong positive momentum, sorry, but it's also the only major bond market in the world that's delivering positive real rates. Um, so you've got valuation on your side, you have uh, momentum on your side, and, uh, and you've got fund flows on your side. Now, on top of this, China's currently running a trade surplus of 50 to $70 billion a month. So that means that month in, month out, you have roughly 70 to $100 billion a month coming into China. The question is, assuming that China doesn't want to let the renminbi go absolutely through the roof, which you know, they, they clearly don't, how will China recycle these large currency inflows? Will they do like they did in the early 2000s and buy U.S. Treasuries? Well, no. Geopolitically, that doesn't work anymore. Will they buy commodities? Yes, that's what they're doing already. They're stocking up on oil. They're stocking up on iron ore. They're stocking up on copper. Um, will they buy foreign assets? Well, if they do, it'll be mostly uh, in emerging markets. Uh, 
or potentially will they buy gold? They've just changed the rules on domestic commercial banks. Uh, they basically allowed domestic commercial banks to buy 10 times more gold than they were allowed before. They, that occurred about three, four weeks ago, which funnily enough coincided with the, uh, the, the bottoming of the, of the gold price. Um, so if you look at our world today, I think there's, there's a very interesting contrast where in the Western world, we couldn't be easier with monetary policy and we couldn't be easier with fiscal policy. Meanwhile, if you look at China, the world's number two economy, they're already tightening monetary policy, they're already tightening fiscal policy, and they're already tightening regulatory policy. Um, you have the number one economy in the world, the US, being as stimulative as it can be, and the number two economy pressing on the brakes. Um, so the obvious consequence of that, I think, is that you'll continue to see steeper yield curves in the Western world and flatter yield curves in the, West, in the, in the Eastern world. You'll continue to see weak currencies in the Western world. You'll continue to see stronger currencies in the Eastern world. Accelerating inflation in the West and inflation that remains in check out East, thanks mostly to stronger uh, currencies. And with all this said, oh, sorry. Uh, hold on. Um, I'll just finish with a simple observation. Um, and that is that I know that all this week there's been a big debate between deflation and inflation. Um, but when I look at the list of rising energy prices, rising food prices, rising metal prices, rising RMB, rising mortgage rates, record low inventories, not only in housing, but also in autos and in a number of other things. When I see a surging shipping rates and surging lumber prices, when I look at the shortage of CMIs and the supply chain disruptions, and to top it on all off, on top of this, you've got unprecedented easy money and unprecedented level of government spending. Um, you know, should we worry about inflation? Well, let me just say this. If you're not going to worry about it now, when are you going to worry about it? Like, what's it going to take? Um, and if you're not worrying about inflation, it's clearly you're thinking there's going to be a deflationary hit coming from somewhere to counterbalance all these inflationary uh, uh, trends uh, accelerating. Will that be falling asset prices? Well, central banks are doing everything they can to, to prevent that from happening. Will it be falling wages? Well, governments are doing everything they can to prevent that from happening. So then you have to assume that we're going to have tremendous, tremendous productivity gains in, in our economy, that we're going to have tremendous productivity gains at a time when there's massive semiconductor shortages. So it, it will, it's unlikely to come from technology. You're going to have tremendous productivity gains when governments are adding regulation and adding protectionism. Uh, it might work, but you know, to me, it, it sounds a lot like an Elizabeth Taylor wedding. It's really the, the triumph of hope over, over experience. Uh, and that brings me to, to this last slide. When I look at the list of prices that are going up, um, I feel a little bit like uh, like John Cleese in The Life of Brian. Now, I don't know if I imagine some of you have seen Monty Python's Life of Brian movie. John Cleese is the leader of the, the People's Front of Judea in that movie. And in that movie, you know, as he revs up his troops, you know, he says, you know, what have the against the Romans? He says, what have the Romans ever done for us? And, you know, one guy raises his hand and says, well, it's safe to walk the streets at night now. And another guy says, well, you know, the, the schools are much better. And another guy says, well, they did bring wine. And another guy says, uh, well, they did build the aqueducts, et cetera. And in the end, you know, John Cleese says, well, apart from sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Um, and today, I think, you know, when you look at when you look at inflation, uh, this is what it feels like to me, you know, aside from rising gasoline prices, rising food prices, rising metal prices, rising RMB exchange rates, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, why should I worry about inflation? Um, what have the Romans ever done for us? So in conclusion, I think we've moved from a world of weaker RMB, falling yields, falling oil, and stronger dollar, to a world of rising RMB, rising yield, rising energy prices, and weaker US dollar. The investment environment has been completely turned on its head. Now, this has really occurred in the past six months, begging the question of whether portfolios have adjusted to this new reality. And here, I would say that in such a short period of time, it seems to me highly, highly unlikely. Um, so uh, I'll conclude with this uh, very simple uh, chart, sorry. And that is that you are today at an inflation crossroad. And I think today's data really, to be honest, forces you to, to take a stance. Um, you can think that inflation is temporary and that the rally and all the in inflation plays uh, should be faded, that we basically remain in a structurally deflationary environment. If you think that, then your portfolio is built for you. It's very easy. You overweight the US dollar, you overweight US growth stocks, 
uh, you avoid U.S. Treasuries and you can go to the beach. I mean, it's not it's not that complicated. If you think this inflation bout is is, uh, is temporary, you can go back to the portfolio that has worked for the past 20 years. Um, if, like me, you think the investment environment has changed, that we're basically moving now into a much more inflationary environment, then the things that have worked so well for the past 10, 20 years will most likely not work that, that well for the next 10. Um, and you need a very different uh, portfolio. Now, when you look at your portfolio construction, you know, a portfolio to me, and I'm, I'll finish by bringing it back to rugby. In a rugby team, you need people of all shapes and sizes. Um, you need, you know, some small, fast guys. You need some, some, some big bruisers. Uh, you need, you really need uh, people of all shapes and sizes. And I'm trying to, uh, to show you the picture. Um, and different guys have different job on a team. Well, the same is true for your portfolio. Um, when you look at your team, when you look at your portfolio, if you think of it as you being a team manager, you need some assets that are going to be anti-fragile. This is what U.S. Treasuries used to be. This is what they no longer are. Um, you need some assets to be contrarian. You need some income. You need some growth. You need all sorts of different things to build a well-built portfolio. The big, big challenge today uh, for every portfolio manager is that if I am right, if inflation really is structurally moving higher, then finding anti-fragile assets is bound to be much more challenging over the next 10 years than it was in the past 10. Um, for me, the anti-fragile assets, the building blocks on which you build your portfolio, no longer are U.S. Treasuries. It's Chinese and Asian government bonds, uh, it's commodity currencies, uh, and it's gold and silver. Uh, and on this, I'd love to take any questions. Thank you very much, Ed. Louis, great presentation as always. Thank you. I'm still laughing about the uh, Liz Taylor comment. Um, <laughs> Liz Ann Saunders was with us a, a few days ago. She had a great line where she said that uh, the textbook definition of transitory me is um, not permanent, right? So therefore, life is transitory. Um, so there's a great question from the audience here. Transient inflation versus lasting inflation. Please give us your best guess as to when we will definitively know which it is. Um, Lisa Ann Saunders always has the best one-liners. Uh, <laughs> she, she really does. Um, the, the last thing, um, when will we know? Well, uh, let me put it to you this way. By the time you know for sure, it'll probably be too late to adjust your portfolios to the new reality. Because if you're waiting to know for sure, uh, a lot of prices will have already evolved by then. Um, now, um, ask, ask yourself this, um, what price that you're paying today, you think will be cheaper in a year's time? You think will be cheaper in five years time? You know, what are you buying today? Now, uh, you could say, well, anything technology related, but in a world with maybe in five years time, it'll be cheaper, but in a year or two, it probably won't be in a world with shortage of semiconductors. You're going to pay up for your for your uh, and that shortage of semiconductor, by the way, is not ending anytime soon. You know, why did we end up in a world of shortage of semiconductors? Yeah, um, where where did that come from? Because no one was talking about that pre-COVID. Well, here's the thing. Uh, well, actually, sorry, Ed, but we talked about it. Uh, I we talked about it last year and the year before. It uh, it if you go back to 2017, what did President Trump decide? President Trump decides. Nobody uh, can sell semiconductors to China anymore if there's any U.S. technology on it. Now, China is roughly a third of, of, your, uh, of your semiconductor global market. So now you're, you know, you're any semiconductor company and you've just been told you can't sell to basically a client that represents a third of your business. What do you do? Well, gee, I'm not going to increase my capital spending. Uh, I'm going to collapse my capital spending, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty painfully obvious. Uh, especially if at the same time, China says, well, if this is the case, I'm going to spend hundreds of billions developing my own semiconductor industry. So now if I'm a Western semiconductor company, I think, well, great. Not only do I lose a market, but at the same time, these guys are going to compete with me. Fast forward three years. And what do we find? There's been the collapse in CapEx uh, in, in the Western world out of fear you couldn't sell to China. And then on the other side, China hasn't been able to basically 
build up its capacity as as one might have hoped or as China at least might have hoped uh, because building semiconductors is really turns out is really complicated uh, and it's it's not just a question of throwing money at it um, mm -hmm. and so yeah this is you know lo and behold newsflash you get government intervention in an industry and two or three years later you get shortages who could have seen that coming I mean that is so blows your mind right that this got to be no history historical precedence for this by the way today what do we see massive increases in esg rules massive increases in government uh in how how we can move uh, energy around how we can produce energy etc and lo and behold shortages all over the east coast of uh, of energy uh yeah. surely that's an anomaly and as we increase the rules on energy producers i'm sure we're going to end up with a lot more energy than we know what to do with right <laughs> um that you know it's it's like it's like none of these guys have ever read a history book. So continuing with semiconductors, you said you are chairman of the ETF uh, Robo, R-O-B-O. I just yeah. spoke with Kathy Wood of ARK Invest, who you know well. She feels that ultimately robotics will be disinflationary. Um, it, it, will the price of robotics simply follow wages? Meaning, right. robotics companies and 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 the technology behind them, are, with scarcity of semiconductors, with wages going up, aren't they just going to get more and more expensive as well? Well, it's it's not a question of expensive. It's just like the bloody semiconductors is a question of getting them. So today, if you wake up and you think, you know, oh, cost of labor is really going up. You're McDonald's, for a case in point. You're you know, cost of labor is really going up. I need to automate the hell out of every one of my McDonald's. Uh, you know, all, all across the U.S. Uh, because the labor costs are, are just, you know, ramping up. Uh, let's call Cayenne, let's call Fennec, let's call, et cetera. You know, mm -hmm. let's call all these guys and say, hey, uh, can I have a robot next month? They say, how about three years? You know, how about, like, if you think you can just call up and get wow. whatever industrial robot you want right off the bat, you know, let's not forget, you know, if you look at the robotics industry, who who are the you know the, the the huge consumers of of industrial robots is the auto industry on the one hand, and mm -hmm. the uh, consumer electronics industry on the other. These are really the big the big consumer of electronic robots. Um, what's what's happening in these two industries today? You're seeing production shutdowns for lack of semiconductors, right? Um, that's right. on the one hand. On the other hand, you're what you've seen in the auto industry is just gobs smacking amounts of money go into electric car uh, development, right? It's like anybody with a, a pen, a paper, and an electric car dream has been funded over the past two years. Now, if you get funded for your electric car dream, what do you buy? What's the first thing you buy? Robots. Sure. Um, so if you think that all of a sudden you can rock up and say, hey, uh, you know, can I get the robots delivered next month? Why would you be able to get a robot delivered next month when you can't buy an F-150 at the car dealership? So is it uh, debilitative to that to that uh, sector? Is it bullish for that sector? No. Do you think well, it like, washes out? It'll wash out over time. Okay. Uh, it'll wash out over time. But look, will the demand be strong over time? Massively. So it's now an industry where the problem is not the lack of demand. The problem is going to be the supply. Is how do you right. keep up? How do you keep up with the demand? Uh, it's just like the auto industry. It's just like the consumer electronic industry. But to think that this is deflationary for everybody else, uh, I think is it's you know is a projection of the past into the future that doesn't take into account the fact that the the reality of the facts on the ground have just dramatically changed. So everything that you laid out in your presentation, combined with some comments that were made on the China panel that you had with with uh, Mark uh, George Friedman and Emily Delabriere make me and the audience want to ask you about USD as a dominant global reserve currency and the role of the renminbi moving forward. Are we seeing a rapid acceleration of change on that front? You know, for me, I've been arguing this for years, but the US dollar is Microsoft, the renminbi is Apple. Um, and um, you're going to have two parallel ecosystems. Um, you know, so we're moving from a, from a world with just one ecosystem to a world with two ecosystems. Now, you know, you've done fine with Microsoft for the past 10 years. You know, there's no, 
there's no Microsoft shareholders crying in their milk at night. Uh, right. But you'd have, you've done better with Apple. Uh, you, you'll have done better with Apple. And this is how I look at the US dollar versus the renminbi equation. Uh, I'd much rather be long the renminbi. I am long the renminbi. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that the US dollar needs to go the way of the dodo. Um, although, if the US government keeps spending $2 trillion every other month, um, then it, it will eventually go the way of the dodo. Mm -hmm. uh, last question. At what point will the Fed conclude that they aren't buying enough bonds? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like uh, it's like psychoanalysis, right? It's uh, if I go see a shrink and I get better, it's the it, the shrink has done a great job, and if if I don't get better, is I need to spend more time with the shrink. Um, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, no, this this is how modern central banking work world works, right? It's uh, it's the old joke. Yeah, uh, how do you know that uh, a Fed policy has failed? Six months I, later, they come they come in and they promise to do twice as much for twice as long, um, <laughs> and. So yeah, you know how long till we get there? Um, you know, I think we'll probably need to see uh, either a bond market crash or an equity crash before the the, the Fed decides. You know what? The problem is we didn't do enough. Um, care to put a timeline on that? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't. No, I had to ask. No. <laughs> well, like, the, the, the big, the big, the big question actually. Um, what seems more likely to me is that we actually have a U.S. dollar crash before before then. Um, the path of least resistance is for the U.S. dollar to go down and down a lot. Um, you know, the, the Biden administration won't mind. The, the Fed won't mind. Emerging markets won't mind because they boom when the U.S. dollar goes down. So the path of least, you know, what works for everyone today on the policy front is the U.S. dollar to go down. So today everyone's waiting, you know, it's waiting for an equity crash. It's waiting for a, a bond market crash. You know, it's, it's, it's the U.S. dollar that will bear the brunt of the adjustment. Interesting. For many people watching, that's a scary note to end on, but we have to end it there. Uh, Louis Gav from GavCal Research, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ed. Great to see you.